Welcome to the inaugural Renatus podcast. We are a boutique private equity company with five investments, with great people doing great things and more to come. This is a series of conversations with people in business, owners, operators, and investors. We discuss their careers and experiences and get helpful insights into what drives them and what makes them successful. In Renatus, we are all about doing great things with great people, and this podcast initiative is yet another example of that. In this first podcast, Renatus investor and advisor Greg Dilger sits down to talk with world-class venture capitalist Barry Maloney. He has a great story to tell. We hope you enjoy it. I'm here with Barry Maloney uh, virtually, of course, as so many communications are these days. Uh, and thank you, Barry, for taking the time out to chat with us. It's, it's much appreciated. Uh, I'm not entirely sure, Barry, how best to do this, but I'd certainly like to spend a fair bit of time on your current portfolio. Uh, which is a, a, essentially a um, significant stake in a business called WorkHuman, uh, formerly known as Globoforce. But before that, I think it would be good if you could run through your career, maybe you know, quite you run through it uh, speedily enough, uh, where the companies you worked for, the um, people you met along the way made an impression on you, and the experiences you had. Um, Going right back uh, to right back to your first job, or even we we'll go beyond, go back further if you can remember it. We might even start with your education. Okay, great. I suppose uh, the, I mean the most average student you've ever met. Let's start off by saying that we were uh, we were in boarding school because my parents were abroad with the United Nations, so we were all in uh, Newbridge uh, and then before that, Presentation College in Bray. So um, as boarders. Um. I suppose did my leaving cert at 16, the first time, as my father kept reminding me. Uh, and uh, just the way it was, the way the birthdays fell, it was, a, when you think back, I mean, that's the time you should be in your junior cert, not your leaving cert. The system was just crazy at yeah. the time. Yeah. But I remember getting, I think I got 12 points on the old system. And I remember to get into UCD to do the most basic arts course, you needed 13. <laughs> so I wasn't going anywhere. So I remember ringing the old man and he said, well, okay, we'll pay it for a year to repeat and I went to the pre-university center and a year later my results came in and I rang him he said how'd you do I said I got 13 points this time <laughs> you made it that was my first that was my first uh, return on investment correlation <laughs> where he said to me do you know how much I've spent for you to get one more point so now you can go to UCD and DOS for the next three years very good and frankly, that's exactly what I did. I went to went to UCD and did a degree in economics and politics, which was more about living life after boarding school than it was learning anything. But um, great crack, great time. Um, so uh, as I say, the most average, I ended up getting a, a BA in economics, scraping through a BA in economics and politics. Did, this varies in the early, this is back, back in the early 80s. Yeah, so I, I, would, have, I would have left UCD in 1980. Okay. Yeah, I would have left UC in 98. And then, of course, you know, 25% unemployment rate in Ireland. Yeah. So what are you going to do, right? So applying for jobs. I got onto an ANCO course, believe it or not, what was then ANCO, which was a kind of a graduate. Yeah. yeah. And they used to give us like a 16-week, you get paid like a five or a week, something like that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, as part of that, they did kind of a work experience thing. And I got a bit of work experience in a company called Beckton Dickinson in Dublin, which is an American healthcare company. And it turned out they had a trainee, uh, graduate trainee program, which I managed to finagle my way onto. Okay. Um, How long did you spend there, Barry? 
That was my first job. I went as a graduate trainee. I was there four years altogether. Um, What I remember most about it was I started on five grand a year and all the BCom lads that I was in college with UCD were starting at three and a half grand. Okay. Uh, And frankly, the difference was American multinationals just paid better at the time. (laughs) Yeah. I remember the slagging because you can imagine the abuse I was getting with my BA in economics and politics and then started on bigger salaries. So that's kind of how it started. Very good. Very good. And um, then the next move was to uh, digital, digital computers, as they were then. Yeah, I spent four years with Beckton Dickinson kind of learning the trade, you know, manufacturing, distribution, logistics, operations, yeah. that type of stuff. And then a, a small company came to Dublin to set up a European operation in the consulting business called CCA or Cleveland Consulting Associates. Yeah. And they rang me. Uh, they were trying to hire consultants for Europe. And basically, I took the job because it was a Toyota Camry thrown in as a company car. <laughs> no other reason. And it was a, it was a five-man operation. And okay. I, but I was going around in the big company car, which nobody else had at the time. So that was, that was the motivation. And funnily enough, the first job we got was with Beckton Dickinson, right? Where okay. we got a big, a big job with them, primarily because I knew their operations. Okay. And all of a sudden, they went from paying me, at that's probably 20 grand a year. They were charging me out at about 150 grand a year, <laughs> which was hilarious. Okay. And I spent uh, basically two years going around Europe working for CCA, doing an operations research project for them. You know, typical stuff, where to put your manufacturing, where to put your logistics, customer care, that type of stuff. Um, did that for two years, was just traveling all the time, uh, got married in the interim, so decided I had to get a job back at home again, okay. and then joined digital equipment here in Dublin in the in the cell subsidiary. Yeah, digital were were very prominent in Ireland at the time, they, you know, very significant um, business. And how long did you, 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 you moved to digital in Switzerland at some point, but how long were you in Dublin for? I was in Dublin for uh, four years, I'm going to say, four years. And then, um, again, I was kind of in that operations end of things. Mm. And then um, digital had this kind of fast track system for people that they thought had a bit of potential. Mm. And out of that program, I got offered a job in European marketing in uh, Geneva and Switzerland in their, in their headquarters. Mm. So I went over there as the European pricing director in the marketing department responsible for the pricing strategy for the company across Europe. Okay. And then uh, a couple of years later, you know, digital was going through a lot of reorgs at the time. The founder, Ken Olsen, had left. There was management changes. Um, and I got my first, if you like, P&L job there, where okay. I was appointed as a division president uh, at the age of 30. And that gave me my real first big responsibility, you know, profit and loss, operations in 16 countries across Europe. And that kind of really set me up from there, really. It's pretty good for a guy who got 13 points in the leaving. You're going well so far. Well, I can tell you, that's why I say, you know, <laughs> education somebody can be separated from a bit of luck and being in the right place at the right time. We're in Switzerland. And then how long more in, in, uh, so in, in digital? In Switzerland for until 94. Um, and then I left 94 um, I was approached by Xerox in California to move over there um, and help them basically figure out their, they were moving out of the copier business into the printer and peripheral business. Mm-hmm. And they tried to hired me to put in place a worldwide distribution and lo- logistics strategy for them across US, Europe, and, and Asia. So uh, I spent two years with them. Is that, Barry, where you got the, 
you have a little bit of an American uh, thing going on, accent still there. Is that where that started, do you think? Yeah, maybe. I, I've, I've worked with Americans all my career, so you, know, you can't avoid picking it up. Well, there's no sign of, there's certainly no sign of the Mayo twang there at all. It's been... Uh, no, it's been... no, <laughs> no, not yet. Mind you, when I'm down there, it probably gets a bit thicker when I'm in the West. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, so Xerox, oh, yeah, it's an interesting next phase, which will be more familiar to people. Um, what, what happened at the end of Xerox and what, what precipitated that change? So when I'm when we moved to California, I was kind of moving for life, if, if yeah. you know what I mean. We no real intention of coming back. But at that stage, um, Dennis and Isa Telecom had put in the application for the mobile phone license. And I started to help Dennis. We were very good friends at the time. And I started to help him on working on parts of his bid submission um, uh, while I was working in Xerox. So a few late night type sessions, yeah. helping him on with parts of it. And then you get the phone call, which you always kind of know is coming. Can you, be, <laughs> yeah. can you be in Dublin next Monday, right? Yeah. And I said, for what? Well, we have to present this to the department. All right. Okay. You do know I'm working for Xerox, Dennis, don't you? I am. <laughs> don't mind that. Don't mind that. Yeah. <laughs> Minor detail. Minor detail. So I literally flew over, had to go in around the back door, right? Because I just... I mean, I was a Xerox, pretty senior person in Xerox at the time um, and did part of the bid. And then out of that, he kind of said, look, if this works, I want you to consider coming back to, to set it up and run it. And that's what happened. So in 90, May 96, I came back yeah. uh, from California to set up Eastside Digifone. Yeah, well, it's, it's funny. You've, got, you've, you've, um, you've moved from a number of multinationals and very structured American organizations into a presumably a chaotic startup environment. That must have been a bit of a shock to the system. Yeah, it was also the, probably the best one I've ever had career-wise. I mean, yeah. literally arrived back, I think it was 30 or 40 ESAT Digifone employees yeah. at the time. The Norwegians were on board, Dermot Desmond was on board. So the shareholders had, you know, we had a body of 40 people, which were basically looking for sites because we didn't even have any sites to hang the antennas on. Yeah. So it was a real startup. And, uh, it was an incredible experience to be part of building that business up to what we achieved four years later. But it was uh, it was the first time I ever had to worry about a thing called cash. Okay. okay, okay, right. When you work in American multinationals, that was always somebody else's problem. Okay, okay. But uh, you know, in a startup, you were worrying about it every week, every month. It was a very interesting, yeah. enlightening experience, I would say. Yeah, but I guess very rounding as well, Barry. Given what you had done before, good to see it. Incredible. And and Isat uh, Digifone was then uh, sold to BT in what what date was that? Two thousand, two thousand, yeah, two thousand, yeah, two thousand. And the obvious uh, question there, and probably younger younger listeners, if they're there, uh, may not even remember this, but older ones will. Like there was a kind of a messy situation with Dennis and the Tribunal and all of that thing. Did that leave sort of a bad taste in terms of your memory of it, or how do you feel about it now? Well, I mean, being part of a tribunal is a very, um, is a very, um, it's not a nice experience. It's always by, by, by its setup, it's adversarial. Yeah. So I mean, I'd never been in the court in my life, frankly. So to spend five days in a high court, you know, on the bench getting grilled by lawyers in front of a judge is not a pleasant experience. No. But you do what you have to do, right? Uh, and, uh, you give the evidence based on you know what you believe the truth to be and what your experiences were, and it falls where it is. Yeah, yeah. So, an experience I could have done without, 
But when you find when you find yourself in the situation, you have to make sure that you handle yourself properly. No, I think so, and I think you, you were clearly your own man. There's no question about that, Barry. Um, and probably the first time in your life, then following the BT thing, you had a few um, quid in your pocket. At what point did the um, benchmark thing come after that? Uh, sorry, benchmark venture capital for the, for those not familiar with with it. Yeah, so after after the company was sold to BT, I mean, having having been part of a startup and enjoying, you know, the the crack and being yep. part of building it up and the way the way you engage with it, I, I certainly didn't want to go back to working for a big company again, and mm. definitely I didn't want to go back to work with BT, which to me was a very large bureaucratic type organization at least at the time. Um, so I was approached then by Benchmark Capital, who were looking to set up their first European fund in London. Was that out of the blue, or did you know them? I, I didn't know them. No, uh, it was it was through a search firm. I knew the search firm because they had they were the people who took me out of digital to Xerox. Okay. And Benchmark had hired them to set up their European team, so they knew that I'd so, we sold BT and that I had a decent ac- exit. And they thought it might be a good fit, and uh, yeah, that's how it turned out to be. I met I met one of the founders of Benchmark, like how Bruce Dunleavy, who's still one of my best friends today. And he said to me, "Look, if you've enjoyed the startup experience, that's what we can offer you." Yeah. Uh, he also said it's the last job you'll do because all you'll be doing is working with entrepreneurs, starting up companies, some of which will work, some of which will won't. But I can guarantee you, you'll never do a different job again. And Barry, before that. Before that experience, had you had any venture capital experience, or really was startup and D- ESAT and Digifone? That was really your your experience. That was it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, when they first rang me, my reaction was one of surprise. I said, "What are you ringing me for?" I said, "Because my perception, my perception of venture capitalists was they were investment bankers yes. or you know accounting accountant type people." But the benchmark model at the time was very much you know we want to hire partners who've been there, done that. We've got empathy for entrepreneurs who understand what the struggles are, who will get into the ditches and dig when there's trouble. Um, and that's so they had a completely different model. And that's what attracted me. And Barry, did the model include you uh, putting skin in the game from day one um, and co-investing with every investment that the benchmark would have made? Yeah. So the way the, the model works is, you know, we raised a fund from primarily U.S. investors. The investors put in the large bulk of the capital and then the general partners of which I was one put in the balance of it. So you've skinned the game right from the, right from the get-go. Um, and obviously having the capital from the sale of to BT was very helpful in that way. So Barry, the, the benchmark experience, you know, I think, I think if I'm right, uh, Bebo, which is amazing really, because you never hear that its brand is certainly disappeared for me. Anyway, Bebo was sort of, a kind of kids Facebook it appeared at the time. Bebo was one of the great successes of of Benchmark. Am I right in, in thinking that? Yeah, it was in the sense that we we got a, a great return after only being an investor for eighteen months. Okay. So in that sense, it was. I can't say it was the best company we ever built. We yep. we saw the trend t- towards social uh, media, social yeah. networks early, and we and we got into the biggest one in Europe early, and I think that was the. If we were clever, it was doing that. It was okay. convincing Michael Birch to let us in. We were the only investor in the company outside of himself and his wife, Zochi. Okay. So, but I can't say we built a great company, Greg, because it got sold to AOL Time Warner. Yep. And sure enough, within three years, they managed to kill it. So, yeah. um, 
you know, th- that happens. Yeah. But from a return point of view, it was unbelievable. We made like 10x our money in 18 months, right? So it was a big home run as an investment. And I, I, I think Betfair was another one of your successes in there as well in, in, during that time, was it? Yeah, the early days, we had Betfair, which we IPO'd. We had a company called Youth that we IPO'd. Um, we had a company called Talent. Um, another business called MySQL we yeah. sold to Sun. So look, we, we got we got some very decent, you know, billion dollar plus exits in the first couple of years. So that helped us build our, our record and reputation yeah. and became, you know, a significant operation in the European early stage venture uh, world. Presumably, Barry, presumably like most venture capital funds, you have some horror stories and disasters as well that don't go right. Any obvious ones sort of scream, scream at you now? Oh yeah, I mean we've. I mean, well, we, we, one of the things we always used to do is go back and look at the deals we missed, mm. right? So, so for example, uh, we saw um, Daniel Elk in Spotify very, very early. Mm. He came to us uh, with his pitch, like we could have done that deal. Yeah, um, and we loved him, and we loved the app, and we loved where he saw music heading. Our challenge was we had just come out of an investment which a lot of, I think your listeners might remember, called Satanta. Yeah where we backed Mickey and Leonard to take on Sky uh, with the Premier League stuff in the UK. Mm. And, you know, we built a what I believe was a phenomenal business. We got to 400,000 subscribers. At 450,000 subscribers, we'd have been break, break even. And then we, were, we could have raised some more money. Yeah. Sky changed the rules, and we were out of the game. Sky got five packs, and with one pack, we weren't economical. Yeah. Yeah. So we have, to, we have to fold the business, unfortunately, in the UK. But the lesson we learned out of that is if you don't earn the content, mm. building a distribu- you know, an, an efficient distribution channel, if you don't own the content, is challenging. Painful way to learn it. Very painful. Uh, so when we met Daniel, we loved him, we loved the app, but we could never figure out how he was ever going to be profitable given all the leverages with the labels because they owned all the content. And having lost at the time was like $50, $60 million out of a $500 million fund. That was a huge hole. Yeah. We, we passed on it because we couldn't figure out how Spotify was ever going to make any money. You look back on that, and our, our analysis was right. It still hasn't made any money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it turned out it didn't matter. Yeah, exactly. Because it went public in the U.S. at $8 billion, and it's worth 20 now. Incredible. Um, so Barry, benchmark. How much? Uh, how many years did you put in there before before the Balderton? Yeah, we were, we were seven about seven about seven years as as benchmark. So our, our first two funds, and then what was happening is we were we were making you know a lot of investments in Europe. Those European entrepreneurs, as their tech businesses grew, they started to move to the U.S. because if you're going to be big in tech, you need a strong U.S. presence. And we started at the merge at the margin to get a little bit of friction between the two partnerships because we were backing similar entrepreneurs in similar spaces. And neither of the guys in benchmark nor us in Europe wanted to spend time on committees worrying about who was doing what. Okay. So we decided the easiest way is to remain investors in each other's funds, but to separate and build a new firm. Okay. And that's how Baldwin Capital was set up. And myself and a guy called Mark Evans were the founders of it. Okay. And we set that up, uh, I'm going to say that was back in 2007. And so we became Balderton from then on. Okay. Um, 
just thinking Balderton, the sort of the, the standout investments are, we'll get to work human eventually, but there's an Irish company called OpenNet that uh, was in the Balderton stable at one point. Maybe tell us a bit about that. I think Joe Hogan might, might have been the guy behind that, Niall Norton. Joe was the founder of it. Niall was the, uh, I brought Niall in originally from ESAT Digifone because I've known him from there. So I brought him in originally as the finance director to OpenNet. And then uh, we had a change along the along the route, and Niall took over as CEO. The, the, the thing I always admired most, Greg, about those two guys, Greg, or sorry, uh, Niall and, and Joe, is that they're so different. Mm. Joe was the typical uh, entrepreneur. He was the the techie who invented the code, who understood the customer need, but running a business was not Joe's forte. So. The challenge with that is trying to get the founder and the CEO to work together in a team of two. Yeah. And, and my admiration from them is how well they did that because very different people, uh, but managed to work out his whose space each, each had. And as a team, they were a strong, powerful unit. Mm. And, you know, they stayed at it a long time. That company had a lot of ups and downs. I and mean, we went very close, very close to the wall a few times. The little known story that 18 months before we eventually sold it for $180 million to Amdocs, we did a refinancing when the company was on its knees, which valued the company at $18 million. Yeah. Oh, my God. So, Incredible. you know, having been over $100 million in revenue, dropped back to, I don't know, 40, 50, whatever it was, and then we sold it at $70 million for $180. Okay. It was, it was a roller coaster. Um and in fairness, they they were determined, they stuck with it, and I did everything I could to support them along the way, um, including, thankfully, buying the stake off Balderton. So I was able to, I got, a, I got a good return, given I was with them for 20 years as well. Barry, just explain the, 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 um, how the, the exit from Balderton happened and the company, the stakes you took with you, and how it happened vis-a-vis the timing of the fund. And, and I, think, I think everybody was happy enough with the outcome. But re- remind, remind us how that happened. Yeah, so I, in 2018, I, I left uh, Baldwin. I'd been I'm living in Dublin all along, so I was commuting to London every, every week. So I was doing that for 18 years. It gets a bit tiring. So I decided in 2018 they were going to raise a new fund, and I didn't want to be part of it. So the deal I did was I would manage the, the investments that I had done which at the time was something like, I think, 14. But I would manage all of those to exits, but I wouldn't do any new investments. So I did that. Um, and I think the last two companies that I had were OpenNet and WorkHuman. Uh, and at that stage, the partnership didn't want to continue extending the funds because this is like 14, 15 years later. And um, I, made, I made an agreement with them that I would make a bid for the two assets to buy them personally because I believe both companies still had you know, very good futures, but it was going to require more patience. Okay. So I went out and I raised uh, $200 million and bought the, uh, the two stakes off Balderton into my own name, if you like. And uh, I've been you know, working on them, I guess, since then, plus some other you know, bits and pieces that I've been doing along the way. Yeah. Well, I think we, we'll talk about WorkHuman. I think WorkHuman is, is an amazing company, formerly known as GlobalForce, I think. Uh, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but just just um, moving off piece a tiny bit, uh, just a couple of things. Like the horses, I think, I'm not sure that we speak on this thing. We spoke maybe before the podcast started. But, you know, you have a, a relatively small interest in horses. I think you have six horses. Um, 
and you have um, talk about landing on your feet. You, you. I think it's probably the equivalent, or what we used to call scoring a goal at Wembley. The horsey equivalent of that is winning the Cheltenham Gold Cup with your with your horse. So that must have been an incredible uh, treat, Barry, for you, and very exciting a few weeks ago only, really. Yeah, look, it's been, to be honest, Greg, my liver's still only now coming <laughs> coming around to what it was like before. Yeah. It's uh, like, yeah, it's a dream come true. I mean, it, you know, that would have been one of the things on my bucket list, uh, which I never thought would happen this early. Yeah. Uh, it's still a little bit unreal. It hasn't really, it hasn't really Sunk gone on yeah. what's happened, you know. But uh, but it's just, I mean, unfortunately, we weren't able to be there. It was awful, yeah. We said that. It gave us a great lift during the pandemic when, you know, lifts, lifts are hard enough to find at times. But I, I think, Barry, I think, Barry, the, you've been, you're making bets on people all your investment, all your life, really. And I think possibly in Henry de Bromhead, uh, you picked a pretty good guy to get involved with before he's become the, the star that he is now. I think you made a great call there. Yeah, look, he's a, he's a great, I've known Henry for many years. Uh, we always we always got on well when I decided to do it. I, I approached him and we came up with a plan as to how we were going to do it. Um, and I found him excellent to work with, the real professional of what he does, uh, as honest as the day is long. Mm. Um, and it's great to see all of his efforts and all of his work come to fruition this year. Again, pity about the pandemic, but mm. despite that, I mean, it's just incredible what he's achieved. Yeah, and he's now uh, he's now arrived, and it, it's fantastic to see it. The only thing that didn't happen on that particular day, which would have maybe topped it off even more, is had uh, Rachel Blackmore ridden your horse instead of the other one, the horse that was second. Yeah, that's that's probably true, but you know, that's that's life. You know, sometimes that you know there are choices to be made, made, and sometimes they work, yeah, sometimes yeah. they don't. It's like investing. And Barry, is it would it be fair to say that you're you're sort of you know, it is a bit of a business, no doubt. You have six horses. I, I, I can only imagine that's not cheap. Um, your 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 strategy, I guess, is to lose as little as you can and squeeze as much joy as possible out of it. Is that a reasonable kind of uh, strategy for your your horses? Yeah, I think I think that, I mean the background to this is we've kind of gone to going to Cheltenham for the last twenty years. Had a very early interest in national hunts through my my dad. My dad and my uncle would come with myself, my brothers, and two or three friends every year. We always wanted to have a horse good enough for Cheltenham. Mm. Uh, and that started with Monolly back in 2016, 2016, mm. the first time we had a runner there. Um, unfortunately, my dad passed away, so he wasn't there to see it. But once we got into it, we started to uh, to hope that one day we would win it Yeah, at Cheltenham. We did that with Manila when he won the Alfred Bartlett. Yeah, and then uh, we were second in the RSA last year, and then this year he shows up and, w- and wins the Gold Cup. So it, it it's been something we've all done together, um, and we do it for the fun. Yeah, and we have a load of fun, and it's a great interest. It keeps us all together. And um, Barry, your two brothers are are kind of involved in that with you, aren't they, Alan and well, my Mike. brother Michael? Michael is very into the horses, and he he's my partner in the in the horses we have. Mm. And my other brother Alan is a huge fan and part of it as my younger Great. brother Shane as well. Yeah, so we do it. And my my uncle Noel has become a bit of a like he he's everywhere with us now, right? He, my uncle's eighty, so <laughs> he hasn't missed the che- he hasn't missed the Cheltenham yet. So we really? crack with it. Uh, and it, it's it's a it's a 
Yeah, I mean, I look at it as a hobby, Greg. Yeah. It's not something we're trying to make money off. You know, I the way I see it is if you whatever you spend on the horse, you know, that's your capital yes. invested. Forget about that. It ain't coming back. Yeah. And then if you can pick horses good enough to cover your training fees and you're having a lot of fun, then that's that's kind of the way we operate. Well, it's segueing into something similar. Uh, you're, you're yourself and your brothers and your family. You're from Mayo, uh, um, but, but you bought uh, Mount Falcon, the lovely country estate, Foxford, I think it is, isn't it? In Mayo, you bought that. At, what, what was the what was uh, behind that? Uh, what was behind that uh, purchase, Barry? Well, it used to be a it used to be a kind of a, a country house run by a lady called Connie Aldridge. Uh, she used to have it as a guest house, but. Going back to my dad, who was the one originally from Mayo, he, as a kid, would have would have known the estate, but because he was, you know, it was a typical Protestant estate, much bigger than it is now at the time. Mm. But he, he, I remember him telling the story, looking over the gates, but he was never allowed in, type of thing. So my brother Alan, who was the who is the entrepreneur in Man Falcon's case, spotted it when it came up on the market and kind of came to myself and my other brother Michael and said, "Look, should we have a go at buying this and let's develop it into something where." We're proud of yeah. something we can build. Yeah. So that's what we decided to do. Again, whatever that is, that must be 15 years ago now. So we we, we bought yeah. the original house, developed it into a hotel, built on an extension, put 50 properties into it. And we've been, uh, my brother Alan's been running it down there ever since. So yeah, I get down as often as I can. We have a, we have a home in the estate there. And it's a great way. The further west you go, you just de-stress. Mile by mile, yeah, yeah. So it's fantastic to get down. So that's that, that that's great. That's a great story. Um, just in terms of other stuff, Barry. You know, the, just thinking. You've had, obviously you've gone through a lot of companies there. You're like right now, as we sit today, like standout people that you've you've kind of helped you and influenced you over the years. Who stands out immediately, instinctively? Who do you think of? Well, I suppose the, the person that had the biggest impact, I guess, I'd have to say is Bruce Dunleavy from Benchmark in the sense that, like, I I was, my head was definitely never in the venture capital, you know, me, a venture capitalist, you've got to be kidding me. So for him to be able to convince me to get into this area and to convince me to, to give yeah. it a try and to do it was um, a pretty effective sales job. And as I've got to know him since then, I can see why he's as good at what he does as he is, because he's very convincing. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, I would say, like, definitely that that huge influence on my on my life. Going back before that, there was a guy in digital in Europe, a guy called an Italian called Piercarlo Falotti, who was the president of digital Europe, and he was the guy that took a you know a BA graduate out of UCD with thirteen points and appointed him to a senior. You know, business unit PL job at the age of 30 with like 14,000 employees or whatever the hell thing was at the time. And so he took an enormous risk by making a bet on me. Uh, and I always, when I look back, I mean, that really set me up career wise for what happened afterwards because I learned so much from that experience. Mm. And it was a huge risk for him to take. Well, it's, I, I'm, I still can't get over the fact, Barry, you don't sound like a guy, a 13 point man in the leaving search um, these days, but I don't know what you were doing in those, those exams. Greg, it was only 12 <laughs> the first time I did it. So 13, 13 was after <laughs> I repeated it. <laughs> And, and, and you know, Greg, the other guy was 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 the foreman in, in Beckton Dickinson, a guy called Pat Smith, right? He, was, he used to run the warehouse, and I was the graduate trainee sitting up in the office, as he used to say. And like, because I was the the college graduate, they'd all be taking the piss out of me, you know? Yeah, in the suit. 
I'd be looking at the computer filling 40-foot containers with what was meant to go to each of the subsidiaries. And the lads would be messing, changing the boxes, changing the portfolio. And then he'd be ringing me up and he says, what's that computer telling you? And I'd be saying, there's 100 of them there. He says, there is not 100 of them down. Come down here and don't mind that computer. Come down here and count them yourself. So he taught <laughs> me a Valuable lesson. Yeah. He taught me a Valuable lesson. Yeah. And I used to spend a lot of time in that warehouse working with the lads, counting out the boxes to make sure when I committed, that's what went on the load. And uh, I learned a lot about life working with those fellas, I can tell you. Well, it's funny, Barry, you, you know, I think sometimes younger people, I, I guess, have, they see the glamorous um, sort of end products of great businesses and people who've done very well. And they probably don't realize the amount of the bumpy road that was on the way and, and heartache and pain. And, uh, you know, your, your sharing of your leaving search issues i think is great you could easily skip it skip it and not mention it but it's actually part of you and, and i think it stands to you and there's there's a lot of um you know your career has moved on very interestingly and it, it actually makes you it allows you to tell the leaving cert story i think and enjoy it really because it's i don't know what it says about the leaving cert or what it says about you i'm not sure but i'm, uh, not, either. It's, it's, I'm not either <laughs> but that's what happened um Barry, uh, we're, we're going to talk about work human in a minute, which is really your your, your big thing. Just on the um, just on the the government and COVID and all that. Obviously, we, we're all living with this. Have you any standout thoughts about you know it's a, uh, how the government are doing or, or, or generally and and with COVID? Anything on your mind in, in that respect? I mean, look, not really. I mean, I think the observation is there's a lot of people you know trying to do their best. Um, I, I think the challenge is you look at the way our political system is driven and the way people get appointed to these ministries. And in terms of crisis, you know, the cracks become even more apparent. But, you know, you're asking people who have, you know, maybe successful school teachers or successful, successful solicitors in their hometown or educators, people like that. And then all of a sudden they're being given, you know, their ministries, some of which are bigger than multi-billion dollar businesses in terms of what they spend and the effect they yes. can have on the yes. economy. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's very difficult in these crises for mm. people to manage because they have not had mm. the background, they have not had the experience of crisis management or managing organizations that big. I've often thought, Greg, that if we could find a way in Ireland to follow the US model a little bit, that once mm. we elect a teacher, to allow them appoint people to run the departments who are like CEO types, yeah, right. Being made from the UK or the US, people who have been very successful, proven track records, ask them to give three or four years of their life back to their country. Yeah, I know many of them in the US and the UK would do it in a heartbeat if they were ever asked, and recognize them for what they've done then to help the state, and then have the civil service running, you know, working for them. Yes, yes, and give them the goals to manage the economy, manage healthcare, and manage. I just somehow think we'd get a better result. Yeah, I, I, the issue, I don't know, Barry. Like, I think it makes it makes a lot of sense. But what would precipitate that change? I, I, I can't just imagine, you know, how it can happen. Yeah, I, I can't either, unfortunately. But I think we have to get away from the system that you know, you know, you're the next minister of finance because you're next in the pecking order to be Taoiseach. Yeah, I mean, you know, that kind of logic are putting somebody in place for to run healthcare who isn't even a doctor. I know, I know. Are, in finance who isn't even an accountant. I mean, just we keep getting the same results. So at some point, we've got to think about how can we change it. Mm. And I'm sure there's other ways. Yeah. yeah. But but I think I think this that kind of approach 
may be worth. How would happen in Ireland? Would it ever happen in Ireland? Unlikely. Yeah, no, it's going to be very difficult. Unlikely. Um, Barry, just you know, moving on. But I said I'd leave Work Human to the end. Um, Work Human was called Global Force originally, and you've kind of a long history with this company. Um, I think it's probably it's, it's a really interesting company, and I'd rather you talk about it than me. But this came out of this is one of the companies you bought out of Balderton, um, um, with with backing from ICG or Intermediate Capital in, in London um, at the time of Openet. Openet has since been disposed of, and this is your main. So asset that you're working on. You're also chairman of it. And it goes back quite a while. And, and, and it goes back to a guy called Eric Mosley, who you, you uh, backed many, many moons ago. So maybe tell us about the, the, the uh, work human story, um, uh, because it's just such, I think there's monstrous um, relevance today. The whole ESG um, um, agenda is, is there's companies going to do really well out of that. I think work human is really well positioned. So maybe if you could tell us a bit about it. Well, I mean, Greg, it started off with picking Eric, frankly. I mean, I met Eric. It was the second of that. The first investment I ever made for Benchmark was OpenNet. The second one I did was what was then called Global Force. Um, I met Eric, um, and I was really impressed with what was then a 27-year-old. You know, he had this idea. I think it was called Gift, uh, Global Gift. Global is what gift, his yeah. product was called at the time. And the idea was a gift card that, that would have prior to the internet even, right? You go back to when all this happened, a gift certificate that would have validity in a number of countries internationally was his, was his plan. I knew at the time that I couldn't see this being a particularly big business mm. and it was a consumer offering really at the time, but I just made a bet on him. I, you know, I thought I saw something in him and I thought, this, you know, this kid will figure it out because he was so hungry, so ambitious. Where did you come across him, Barry? Where did you come across Eric? I, he, he was looking for money. He was trying to raise money. I, I had just joined Benchmark. Yeah. I had done my first investment in OpenNet, and somebody mentioned his name to me, uh, and uh, I got a connection. It may have actually been through one of the lads in Davies, because at that time, a lot of the Davies guys were friends of family okay. of Eric's at the time and were early investors. So. But I, what basically happened was I led his first round after friends and family, if you like. I gave him $2 million for whatever it was, at the time, 20% of the company, something like that, to set him up. So it was really a bet on the person. I never imagined at that time, work human, the work the company we have today would emerge out of that. So it, it, I'd love to tell you we'd have a plan, but nothing like that. Sorry, Barry, where was Eric from? Like, What, what was his background? Uh, well, sorry, he, he, uh, he uh, I believe, uh, uh, lived in Finglas at the time, um, had done a, some kind of a, I mean, he was a programmer yeah. in, in the sense, but uh, he reminded me recently that the M50 now goes through what used to be his back garden. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and he grew up in a, in a, uh, a very challenging uh, family circumstance yeah. that made him very, um, you know, hungry. Mm. Uh, for self-sufficiency and to create something really important and do something material with his life. And I think it was those characteristics that attracted me to him, frankly. And and um, I think, you know, it's an obvious question here. I, th I think most people probably won't know, but in a sort of plain English, like what do, what does work human do? What are its, what are its offerings? Uh, what, and also, Barry, maybe just to go on, but what sort of companies and what scale of companies use 
WorkHumans offerings? Uh, do you need to be a really big company? Do you need thousands of employees or can it work for 50 or 100 employees? Tell us a bit about the, the service. Well, I mean, the, so the, the, the hallmark of the company is, is, is a principle called social recognition, which, which is kind of Eric has really championed in the US. He now lives in Boston and has done the last seven or eight years, maybe even more, nine years. Um, and this whole concept of social recognition is a new way to, for companies to work with their employees. So his basic con- concept is quite simple. All companies talk about people being their biggest asset. Very few companies know whether they are or not Hmm. and how to manage them, how to keep them happy, make sure morale is good, and make sure they don't lose them if they're valuable to the business. It's really that concept of making work more human has driven the concept of work human, which Eric has led. But it sounds, Barry, it sounds, at at first blush, it sounds like a sort of fluffy concept that's a nice idea and it, it it sounds that it's really going to be really difficult to make it work and get get ceos or, or I, i'm not sure who the who makes the decisions to to use work human i guess ceos have to have to 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 uh to to sit to uh, agree it and take it on but it just sounds like a thing that's fluffy and nice and would be lovely but but it, it, it's hard to get to you know i'm i'm very surprised you'll tell us a bit about the numbers and the scale of this thing this is this is very big and growing yeah. I mean, I was going to say, like, he has 350 customers now. Uh, he's got probably Fortune 500 companies. He probably has 150 of them. Uh, so, I mean, he, he has he has managed not only to get them to the adopt, to adopt the platform, but to prove the return on investment to those companies. Okay. And these are big companies. These are like General Electric. These are, you know, Johnson and Johnson, Procter and Gamble, yeah. IBM. I mean, these are household names. LinkedIn. They're big, big companies. And what he's been able to prove uh, through the data he's been able to gather is that by spending what he says should be one percent of your payroll, yeah, on social recognition program, he can give you a very clear, returnable ROI in terms of more motivated employees. Less people leaving, yeah, and of course, then you have the cost of recruiting, yeah, yeah, and higher productivity. And he has the facts to prove it for the companies who have adopted his program. And his concept is quite simple because he's not looking for new budget. All he says to them is, take one percent of your payroll, just one percent of your existing payroll, and invest that in the Work Human platform. Mm. I will sell you a bucket of points for that. You distribute those points across your company. Yeah, and allow every employee, every manager, use those points to recognize the employees in your company who do good work, and everybody should judge what that good work is. Yeah, and if as those points get deployed across your company, you're going to figure out how your company actually works, as opposed to what your org chart says, and lo and behold. You're also going to find out, Barry, who your really good people are, who's who the leaders are, even though they're not in perhaps in lead, leadership positions. Exactly. And what he says is, you're spending this money on bonuses anyway. Mm. But he, Eric, will say, and, and the belief that we built the company on is, let's say you're earning, you know, ten grand a year. Just take an example. And at the end of the year, your boss gives you, you know, a grand bonus in in January of the following year. 
you feel good about that bonus for about three weeks and then you're forgotten about it, you're thinking about next year's. Mm. And what Eric has proven is take that same thousand dollars, divide it by ten one hundred dollars, and put it into points. And that person will feel more recognized and more appreciated because he's going to get hit ten times with those points over the year. Yeah. Right? The effect of that in terms of loyalty, motivation, and appreciation. And self-esteem, I imagine, as well. And self-esteem are valued. So they feel valued. With those points, he has then built an e-commerce platform where those points have a currency. So if you think of airline points, something similar, you build up your points. Okay. And then you go on, you go on the e-commerce site that he's built, and they spend that those points. And it's as valid in India as it is in South Africa, as it is in the US, yeah. as it's in Mexico, Argentina. Because way back then, when I first backed him, he was running around to all those countries, signing up those retailers for these gift cards. Incredible. And now what he's been able to do is to build all of that into an e-commerce platform where these points now have currency for these big companies who have employees in every one of these countries. Yeah. And they can use those points to book holidays, buy restaurant tickets, they can buy uh, electronics off the site, they can go to their local theater or whatever they want. Yeah. But it's a closed loop where 6 million people are now spending these points. And I guess, Barry, the, the predominantly this is US companies, so there must be enormous opportunities in the rest of the world, in Europe, I guess. Yeah, we're, we're only starting. I mean, the, the total addressable market for this business is probably north of 30 billion, we reckon, just in the US alone. So it's a huge market. And WorkHuman is now the biggest player in this space. And Eric's thought leadership has helped create the market. And that's the opportunity. Yeah. And that's why the company has got to the scale it's got to. And, you know, frankly, Greg, I think the best is, is still ahead of us yeah. by a long way. This, this can be bigger than any uh, software company in the human capital management space, from what I can see. Well, there's no doubt that it's, it really is a, it's a very hot space. And the, the, the cliche you mentioned earlier about the, our assets leave, our, leave the building every evening, and that's, that's a cliche. And, and very often, companies don't have an awful lot to back that up. I think they, going forward, I think companies need to prove that they're doing things like that. And this, this, this is there, and it's, it's fitting that growing need. I mean, the most powerful thing he's got going for him is he's got clients like LinkedIn yeah. who will stand up at conferences and, and say, since we put the work human platform in, our attrition of engineers has gone from 35 to 40% out in Silicon Valley down to less than 15%. I mean, the ROI on that is off the charts. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he, he lets the customers do the talking. They market to each other, intuit the same type of experience. P&G, the same type of experience. So the data doesn't lie. And what the data does is it takes the politics out of the relationship between bosses and employees. Because a lot of this is peer-to-peer -peer recognition. So companies can identify future leaders as well. Does it take, um, does it take a while for it, for it to be adopted to satisfactory levels? Because obviously there's habits and people will need to change their habits and get used to it. Like, is it six months or, or less than that or, or more? The, the customer, the customers or clients usually uh, usually drive that. I mean, when we, I know when we signed up Dell computers, we signed we signed Dell. They went live 
in every country in the world, which was something like 60 different countries in the world. They went live, all divisions, all countries on the same day. Yeah, amazing. Right? Other companies will start division by division or geography by geography, but they're usually two or three year contracts, and then they renew every time. So we've got customers who have been with us 9, 12, 15 years. Um, so the data that you gather then is very valuable. I guess at this stage, Barry, you must have, or you, you're, if you don't have, you're going to be looking for more Eric's because, you know, he, it's been an incredible, he's taken it to, to an extraordinary scale at this stage. Uh, I don't know what the revenue, what, like, what kind of revenues, Barry, are we talking? Well, this year you'll do, I mean, it's public knowledge. This year you'll do a billion dollars in billings. Yeah, that's extraordinary. That's absolutely extraordinary. And this is for a business that's only ever raised $14 million in, um, in investment. I mean, he took, he took, uh, two, four, five for me in the end, and seven from Atlas Ventures. Fourteen million is all the capital he's ever raised. So he, he generates cash, and it's a, so it's a very successful, very successful play. I, I suspect, Barry, your old friends in Balderton will will probably have some regrets about this one. This slipped through the net uh, when Barry left. I mean, look, I, I obviously I'm still in contact with them. The company that I founded, you know, I still, you know closely connected to some of the people over there i mean they're you know this things you know markets change yep. things happen you know uh, uh the company has done very well in the last few years and uh, they got a very good return so so the, the the you know the return they got when i bought the asset they were getting 30x their money back because i bought yeah. in so cheaply when okay. i first did the deal yeah no they were yeah so, yeah yeah so so i you know i put the first money in at five million and i put the last money in a half a billion so i did the buyout at, at, at half a billion so they got a great return there i mean 30 extra return no no shame there yeah no absolutely not um you're you're now chairman of it as well as have you been chairman of, of a business before oh yeah i've been you know various you know a lot along along the way but nothing nothing of this um nothing of this scale with the kind of opportunity we have ahead of us um eric and i have worked very closely together for the last well, 20 years, as it reminds me, I've never missed a board meeting. Yeah, and I've kind of, I've kind of helped them along the way as the company has grown and developed. So, when we did the buyout from Balderton, he said, "Look, you know, obviously, I'd love this to happen because I want the un uncertainty of my biggest shareholder. You know, you're going to fix that problem." Yeah, yeah. But then he says, "I want, you know, we're going to work together to make this as big a company as we possibly can." Yeah. Well. I think it's a fantastic story, uh, and it's so well positioned. But I think, I think, I think it's very, um, it's very low profile. Very few people know about this super little company started by a guy from Finglas who's who's uh, got a, a fantastic vision. We used to have an adage, Greg, in the venture business that you want it, you want it back, guys who want to be rich, not famous. And Eric is definitely that's that describes Eric better than anyone I know. Head down, get on with it, no bullshit, and uh, just. Very, very, um, you know, very charismatic, great thinker, and he's built an amazing business. Okay, Barry, I think that's a perfect uh, note on which to finish this first Renatus podcast. Uh, you have had a very interesting and varied career so far, and by the looks of it, it's far from over. Uh, thanks again for being so open and frank uh, with us and sharing the good stuff and the not so good stuff. Uh, and I'd just like to wish you and Eric Mosley and everyone at Work Human the best of luck for the future. And uh, yeah, the best of luck to uh, 
to Renato, Renato's on all the work you guys do.